Good morning. Um, please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. This is the very word of God. Last week, we started a four-part sermon series on humanity, what it means that God made us as human beings in his image. We opened last week with Psalm 8, and then we saw that Hebrews chapter 2, which reflects on Psalm 8, argues that God became truly human in the incarnation, in Jesus, so that in Jesus, you and I might become truly human as well. Truly human? You mean, Ben, that apart from Jesus, we aren't real human beings? That's what Christians believe? Well, that's right. Again, we saw last week that one of the crucial points of being made in the image of God is that we are meant to represent God to the rest of creation. And we are meant to represent him not just in conduct, ruling and reigning over his creation. We are also meant to represent him in character. We are meant to rule and reign over creation in a particular way, namely as self-giving lovers, because that's who God is. Too often, of course, we are anything but that. We show in ourselves the tendency to be self-promoting takers. Instead of being the benevolent rulers of creation, we act more like malevolent dictators of creation. No surprise then, if it seems like even creation itself at times is in rebellion 
against us. So a central point of the Christian faith is that Jesus came to make us truly human. That's what we ought to mean when we say that Jesus came to save us. He came to make us truly human. And it is within that context, within that framing of the biblical story, that we come to see more thoroughly what it means for Jesus to save us from our sins. Sin is the biblical word for what it is that keeps us from being the true humans that we were meant to be. So this morning, let's talk about sin, shall we? The story of sin and salvation from it is the story of how we fell from glory how we find hope in Jesus for that glory that we were meant to have, and also how we can begin to pursue that glory in Jesus right now. The fall from glory, the hope of glory, and the pursuit of glory. So consider first the fall from glory. Now, anyone remotely familiar with the Bible knows that the Bible insists that we have a sin problem. That is, we do it a lot. (laughs) We keep on doing it. But But these days, we have a sin problem in a different sort of way. We seem to not even really know what it is. And that might, in fact, be part of the reason that we keep on doing it. Here in Colossians chapter 3, we find some examples of particular sins. Verses 5 to 9 names them. These are examples of sin, fair enough, but how might we define it? You can turn to a passage, for example, like 1 John chapter 3 verse 4, which gives us a definition. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Pretty straightforward. Sin is breaking God's law. We know the biblical story. Adam and Eve sinned when they ate from the tree that God told them not to eat from. And you and I sin when we do what God says not to do or when we do not do what God says we must do. Simple enough, right? But remember the story of humanity and why God made us in his image. The story insists that we have to say more about sin than merely saying it's breaking God's law. We cannot simply leave it as a moral issue, a violation of God's law. And yet, I find, this is our problem with sin, I think, that typically all most people ever think about it is exactly in those terms. And the problem is, if that's all we have to say about it, if all we think about sin is we are just disobeying God, breaking God's law, then we will often end up, in fact, I find this quite often happens, with some pretty unbiblical views about God, his law, and surprisingly, even about us and who we were made to be as human beings. From time to time, all of my children, I think this is true, have come up to me and asked, Dad, is it a sin to, and fill in the blank. 
How shall I answer that question? How would you answer that question? How do you answer that question, parents, when you're asked? We can go to our Bibles, of course, and see if it explicitly names that particular issue as a sin. Dad, is it a sin to be greedy? Well, here we go. We've got texts. We've got verses. That's easy enough. But usually the question is being raised because it's something that's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. So we end up trying to discern if this particular question, this particular act or behavior or, or, or attitude is tangential to some sin that is specifically named. That's a fine way to go about it. But interestingly, Jesus seems to suggest to us another way. In Mark chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. You can just write this down if you want. I'll refer to it a couple times, so if you want to get there, you can. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus made a very surprising statement when he said this. Listen. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when pressed to explain, Jesus said this, From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And then Jesus says, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, to defile means to cause something sacred to become unsacred. It's an important concept in Judaism. Uh, We don't have time to really kind of get into those particularities. But for our purposes, let me just offer an illustration. It's completely off the topic of what this would mean in Judaism. But this might help us Gentiles, at least, get our mind around at least the concept. What happens when your favorite pair of jeans gets old? I was going to say gets a hole in it, but that might be your new pair of jeans, so that might not work. Uh, or gets a stain in it that won't come out. Uh, I have a few Texas Rangers sweatshirts. Some of you may have seen me wearing a few. A lot. With pride. Well, one day I was doing the laundry and got a little bleach on one. I don't wear that thing around much anymore. I wear it when I'm working outside. Or maybe if I'm going to go paint somewhere, right? You get the concept? You understand defilement in that sense? Instead of your nice pair of jeans being something you wear on a nice night out on the town, you wear them when you go outside to work in the mud, work in the dirt. The point is that sin, whatever it is, however we define it, can also be indicated or detected by what it does. It defiles us as human beings. It makes us something less than what God intends for us to be. You get the point? Sin is a big deal, not because, or not only because, Simply not because it is the breaking of some arbitrary rule that a divine dictator has established. And yet that's what most people think about sin. God is in charge because he's the most powerful, so he gets to set the rules, and God likes this and doesn't like that, and that's how it is. No, no. God's laws are not in place to keep us from being who we really are. 
or trying to prevent us from having too much fun. It's exactly the opposite. What sin does to us is makes us less than what we were designed to be. Sin defiles us because it dehumanizes us. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. You know this verse, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the the glory of God. Okay. Now think about this verse and what it's saying. This does not mean that we have all tried but fallen short of God's demands for us, leaving us with the impression that God is asking us to do the impossible and then threatening to punish us for failing at that task. Plenty of people read Romans 3.23 that way. It's the wrong way to read it. What this verse is saying is that by sinning, we all have declined from the glory of God in which we were created. Psalm 8 verse 5, we looked at last week, says, God, who made us in his image, crowned us with glory and honor. Yes? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our sinning, we have lost or declined from something of the glory. Not that it's been removed, but the image has become defiled. It's like that bleach stain on my sweatshirt. And here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul tells the believers to put to death what is earthly in you. He's talking about the defiling effects of sin. He's telling us, get the dirt off. But you better not start with Colossians 3 verse 5. What Paul has been arguing up to the point where he can now write what he says there, and we'll get to it soon enough, is absolutely critical to understanding what he now expects of us believers in verses 5 through 11. You see, we have all fallen from the glory that God always intended for us to have. But let's be clear about what the Bible tells us is the hope for that glory to be restored. The hope for glory is not get to work and put to death what is earthly in you. Paul actually tells us, has already told us, and we need to be reading this before we get to verse 5, what we are supposed to do or how we deal with this defiling reality of sin. If because of sin, all of us have declined from the glory of God, what is our hope for having that glory restored? What is the hope of glory? And interestingly, Paul has already answered that question in this very book. Look back at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, where he says that at long last... God has revealed, he has made known a great mystery that was hidden for generations, for ages. God has been up to something. God has had a plan. What is this plan? And here's what he says in Colossians 1.27. It almost takes your breath away. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see it, brothers and sisters? We have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what's the hope of getting this glory, this image, back to where it's supposed to be? 
It's Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. Now, whether you use the word sin or not, all human beings have a sense that we were made for glory. So, all of us take some approach to coping with the devastating defilements of sin. The Christian solution, Christ in you, is completely unique. You will not hear this kind of a message anywhere else than in the Christian faith. It's in a category all by itself. There are two basic strategies that most people employ in order to deal with the defiling realities of sin. And again, I'm arguing that everybody believes that there is a defiling. Everybody believes in the problem of sin, whether you use that word or not. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul warns us about falling into these uh, uh, fruitless strategies. Colossians 2 verse 8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See what he's doing? He's saying, don't go after the restoration of the image of God by any other way than the way of Christ. Don't be taken captive by man-made traditions, by philosophy, empty deceit. What's he talking about? Well, he, he tells us in Colossians 2. The first strategy he mentions in verse 16. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's referring here to the regulations of Judaism based on the Mosaic law, specified the kinds, which specified the kinds of food and drink that one could consume, the, the typical holy days that one must observe. These regulations were not there so that those following them could finally get to heaven. They were there to teach them, instruct them on how to be the people of God, how to be different from the world around them that was consumed by the defiling of sin. But here's the thing. A lot of other people employ similar strategies. It's the strategy of identifying the defilement as a problem that is outside of us. Religious and non-religious people alike might see some created thing as the embodiment of sin and insist that if you want to be holy, if you want to be pure, if you want to be undefiled, you've got to stay away from it. But again, going back to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, he specifically said, there is nothing, listen, nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. No created thing can be the source of sin. Why? Because God who created all things declared them to be good. Don't fall for this empty philosophy. Whether you are a Christian, religious or irreligious, don't fall for this strategy. Watch out for those who imply that sin is located in something outside of us. 
The holiness that God demands is not attained by staying away from things that are outside of us. Because the problem with sin is not solved by abstinence, by fasting, by self-denial of earthly or material or physical things. It's what many well-intended Christians think is the way forward. Stay away from those worldly things and you'll be on the path to holiness and true humanity. Paul says, won't work. The second strategy is alluded to in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, he says, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in in detail about visions. This strategy rightly recognizes that the problem of sin, it's not out there, it's in here, right? There is a problem inside of us, and so this strategy insists on some particular type of spirituality to deal with it. Interesting, isn't it, that in our day, so many non-religious people still call themselves spiritual and recommend all sorts of spiritual practices, daily meditation, mindfulness, or whatever. Do these things and you will come to find your true self. Of course, there are plenty of Christians who are well-prepared and ready to tell you that This particular way is the way to have your quiet time or your daily devotions. And that if you do it some other way, well, and especially if you neglect it, don't be surprised if you have a bad day. What's the problem with this strategy? Let's just read what Paul says in the last verse of Colossians 2, and I think you'll see it. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you about those who seem so religious, so holy, so godly, but end up being exposed as very immoral people. Your news feed will tell you all about them. The news will tell you all about self-righteous religious hypocrites. You've probably even met a few. If not, let me introduce you to one. During prayer week this year, I set out to attend all six nights. That's a good thing to do, don't you think? Maybe even expected of one of your pastors. You know. Holy people. Problem is, there was something congratulatory I felt about it as I got to day three. And I realized nobody was going to have a perfect record. Except maybe me. I could perceive a growing self-righteousness that I felt about my religious devotion to go pray every night with all of you especially because no one else was going to go pray every night. So in the mercy of God, the very last night happened to be my birthday. And yes, I'm a holy person, so I was fully intending on going to pray on day six. But my wife approached me and forbade me to go. I argued with her. 
And then she said, would you rather have a romantic date with me at Red Prime or go pray? (laughs) Of course, I can still stand before you and say I feel pretty good about myself. I made it five out of six nights. But that's why I'm confessing to you today. (laughs) You see the problem, friends? What then is the solution to the defilement of sin? If it's not something that's out there that's causing the problem, and if I can't deal with the problem in my heart by some sort of self-made religious practice that just breeds more self-righteousness. What do I do? What is the hope of glory? And you've already been told the answer. It's Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. We cannot find our true selves. We cannot have any hope of glory if we merely deny ourselves something outside of us because the problem is within But neither can we find our true selves by only looking within and trying to fix ourselves by our own efforts and practices. That's what everybody does. It doesn't work. You see, what we need is, in fact, something outside of us that can come into us and change us and restore the glory that we were meant to have. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. Jesus redeemed us from the dehumanizing chains of sin so that we are free to find who we were always meant to be in him. But only in him. Any discussion about what kind of worldly activities Christians ought not to do or about what kind of Christian spirituality that we must begin to practice, all of those that have marginalized Christ and what he has done will fail. Only Christ and what he has done will put a new perspective on both what is outside of us and what can happen inside of us. This is the only hope that can truly transform us and make us into the human beings we were meant to be. That's why when we get to Colossians 3, verse 5, we must read it in light of all that has been said so far. And so at the very least, you pick up your Bibles. We we should have done the whole scripture reading. should have been the whole book of Colossians, but that would have been problematic. So... We started in chapter 3. Let's just start there. At the very least, begin with the first four verses. Do not read Colossians 3, 5 and say, all right, let's get to work putting to death what is earthly in us. Let's go fight our sin. If you don't have firmly rooted what Paul is saying in the first four verses, this is how, with Christ as our hope of glory, our hope of being the human beings we were meant to be, this is how we can begin even now to pursue that glory in him. This doesn't have to wait until you die. It doesn't even have to wait until Christ appears, though we're gonna see something about that in just a moment. This is something you can begin to pursue right now if, well, here's what he says. Chapter three begins by speaking of us who believe in Jesus as having been raised with Christ. 
Now, the only way you can be raised with Christ is you have to die with Christ. And Paul has already mentioned that. A few verses earlier, back in chap- chapter 2, he's already spoken, spoken of that reality. We have died with him. So here you go. This is where it begins. Dying and rising with Christ. That is what it means to be united to him. That is what it means not to get to Christianity two, uh, level 2. This is Christianity level 1. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is how we find in Christ who we're, we're truly meant to be, dying and rising, dying and rising, dying and rising. Every true Christian must be identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's the reason why we are commanded to be baptized as a sign that we have so identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. This is the starting place for our true humanity. To die with Christ means that the rules and regulations of the world no longer apply to us. But that doesn't mean, of course, that you can go out and live by your own rules. It does mean that the ways of the world that are being shoved down our throats as the pathway to our true humanity must be rejected wholesale in favor of the cross-shaped way of our Lord. We find our true selves when and only when we daily pick up a cross and follow him. Why? Because this is the path of self-giving love, not self-preserving liberty. But on the other hand, we are also raised with Christ. And Paul says here in these first four four verses, we must now set our minds on things above. This does not mean that we are to disengage from the world in which we live and hope for some disembodied heaven to be our final home. That's to fall into the air, the first air, of believing that the created world is somehow evil and unredeemable. No, it means rather, what does it mean to set our minds on things above? It means that we meditate on the life of the true human being who is now enthroned as the Lord of the world. Because as verse four says, he is our life. And when he appears right here on earth once more, then we will also appear with him in glory. We will be seen in glory, in the image-bearing reality of who we were meant to be all along. It's in that context and only in that context that you can safely come to what Paul says next in verses 5 through 11. Here's what one commentary says about this verse, about verse 5. Someone who truly understands who he or she is in Christ is further along the road to genuine holiness, or we might say genuine humanity, than someone who in confusion anxiously imagines that the new life is the result rather than the starting point of the daily battle with temptation. You better get that straight. You're gonna be much further down the road if you come to verse five with verses one through four firmly placed in your mind. This is who I already am in Christ. 
I'm meditating on the true humanity, seated as Lord of the world at the right hand of the Father. Now, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. The attempt to change ourselves apart from consistent meditation on who we are meant to be in Christ is doomed to fail. The ancient Greek philosophers got a long way down the road. They were all about the pursuit of virtue, real humanity. It appeared to be successful. Indeed, there is much that we can learn from their approach. There's overlapping goals here. The problem is, for Aristotle, the goal of finding who the true human was led to pride when it was achieved. Whereas in Christianity, the goal should lead us to humility, a virtue that was never prized by the ancient Greeks. In fact, just look at it here in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 5. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. I almost feel like you have to read this so slow just to let it sink into your heart. This is what a real human being is like. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what happens when we find our true selves in union with the true human being. When we pick up his cross, when we die and rise with him, this is what it begins to look like. If it doesn't look like this, then we aren't following the cross-shaped path of our Lord. Now, our text this morning ends with some rather practical things. Just look at it in verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Kind of sounds like what we've just been doing this morning. Sounds like a worship service. Indeed it is. Do you know why? Do you know why? It's because, as verse 15 says, we were called in one body. In a body. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, you should look at this. One of the reasons Christians are called to a different pursuit of glory is because the shadows of Old Testament prophecies have given way to the daylight of New Testament fulfillment. Here's how Paul says it. In in Colossians 2, verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come. And then the, the ESV here makes some interpretive decisions in how it translates it. Let me just read it to you. This is my translation. Take it for what it's worth. Uh, This is my translation. 
But this is literal, what it would say. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. Uh, I'm sorry, I was, got my, lost my place here. The ESV says the substance belongs to Christ, right? You see that? Okay, so here's how verse 17 reads literally. These things are a shadow of that which is coming. That is the body of Christ. That's what it says. Again, something outside of us, a body that comes into us is what truly transforms us into the human beings we're meant to be. The shadows of the Old Testament, looking forward to a day, the New Testament authors with boldness, with excitement said, we don't need shadows anymore. We have a substance. We have a body. So then why now, here in chapter 3, does it sound like a worship service? Is the practice that we put on. Why? Because you were called in one body. The communion of saints, the church gathered in worship, is where, as Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 3, Christ is all and in all. Here, there is, he says, look, there's no differentiation between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all. You want to be made of the human being that you were meant to be? then you need something outside of you that can come in and transform you, and that is the body of Christ. So this is what has to be said in our day. You will never find your true self by yourself. I don't care how religious, how helpful your private practices are. If you neglect the body of Christ, the communion of the saints, where Christ is all and in all, filled by his Holy Spirit, you will never be the human being you are meant to be. We need each other to help us find our true selves, to put off the old self and put on the new humanity, the true humanity. Or as verse 17 says, so that in whatever we do, in word or deed, we might do it all in the name of Jesus with thankfulness to God the Father through him. How do we do that? Stay to yourself, and you might get really holy, and probably be a self-righteous snob like me. You need brothers and sisters. It's an ongoing project, to be sure, one which will take a lifetime. But slowly but surely, because of the body of Christ, we find our true selves, it, well, Paul says it at the end of chapter one, I believe, maturing, growing into the reality of who we were meant to be in Christ. Do you understand what that means, brothers and sisters? It's an ongoing project, God wants to shape you into, but you are also part of that shaping in your brother and sister that you're sitting next to today. No matter who you are, 
no matter how you otherwise might identify yourself. In Christ, those things matter nothing. We are partners in this project of Christian maturity. We need each other. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now by your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us what we need today, a body outside of us, the body of Christ himself. May we not think and despise what is happening when the people of God, trusting in Jesus, filled by his spirit, gather together to worship the Lord, gather together to encourage one another, gather together to spur one another on, to be the true human beings we were meant to be in Jesus. Along the way, I'm sure, well, I know, there are plenty of stumbling, plenty of getting it wrong, but you are in charge. You're the one who called your church your body, and we are called to live in this reality in faith that our crucified and risen and ascended Savior has already won the battle. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. And as we wait for that day to come, we begin to anticipate even now broken signposts, little tastes of a kingdom that is coming. Because in Christ, it has already broken through this present darkness. Would you now fill us with that hope, the hope of glory, which is Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.